0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Dean Bakay of the New York Times and Marty Baron of the Washington Post are arguably the most powerful newspaper editors in the country. They each have had long, illustrious careers in journalism and now find themselves on the front lines of a battle over freedom of the press with a president who seems determined to delegitimate any critical sources of news. I sat down with Bakke and Barron this week in Philadelphia at the Constitution Center where the Founding Fathers thrashed out the fundamental principles of our republic. A version of that discussion aired on my CNN Axe Files show this evening, but here is the full, unedited version uh, of that discussion. Dean Bakke of the New York Times, Marty Baron of the Washington Post. I figured I'd introduce you alphabetically. You'd probably be standing right next to each other online if you were in school together. Uh, welcome to the Constitution Center in Philly, and we chose this place not just because <clears throat> it's roughly halfway between uh, the, your two cities, uh, but because of what uh, the Constitution means and the, and the meaning of that uh, First Amendment. Uh, so it's a good place for this conversation. Uh, You're the editors of two of the most influential papers in this country. Uh, Each of you have your own illustrious uh, stories. You're also the heads of news organizations that the President of the United States has called Fake News. You lead a core of journalists who uh, he's described as enemies of the people. How has Donald Trump changed the way you have to function and operate and the things that you think about? How have you recalibrated to deal with this very volatile president, he's
0: not—he's—he's he's not changed the fundamentals. I mean, and it's important to—to to make that clear. He's not changed the fundamental fact that we are independent, um, and that our job is to ask hard questions of not only him but his most powerful opponents. That—that that hasn't changed. But he's changed significantly around the edges. I mean, he's in my newsroom, and I suspect the same is true in Marty's. We have discussions we didn't have before. We have discussions about. How do you cover a president who obviously does not always tell the truth? Yes. How do you often do you use the word lie? How do you make sure that when you use powerful words like that, they don't use their, they don't lose their import and currency? Those are debates we would not have had in previous administrations
2: and i think we also have to be uh, more transparent about our work and we are trying to be more transparent about our work is show more of that work how did we how did we obtain that information uh, what what are the statements and our stories based upon uh, i think that's a necessity these days is that we uh, almost need to make an argument for the work that we're doing
1: yeah because there's a high level of skepticism and that skepticism is being uh is, is being uh, whipped up on this notion of showing your work necessarily the kind of work that uh newspapers do news organizations do requires reliance on uh, uh on sources who you can't name. Right. Uh and h- how do you how do you judge the value of those sources you obviously know <clears throat> who these sources are it, it, what level of concern and have you, have you raised your level of scrutiny of uh of sources uh in doing this reporting?
0: That that part I would say is what I meant when I said the foundation hasn't mm-hmm. changed. I mean, we still require, you know, multiple sources. I or one of my deputies still needs to know who the sources are. In fact, if anything, we we're, we're more we, we provide more scrutiny, we offer more scrutiny to sources. We still wanna be able to tell readers, as Marty said, about being transparent. If we can, here's where the source is coming from, here's why the source might have an ax to grind. So, so yes, we use anonymous sources a lot. I, I will point out, by the way, I'm not sure we use them any more than we did in covering national security and the build-ups of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, where, to be blunt, the stakes were higher. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, I think the foundational use of anonymous sources has not changed significantly in my newsroom, even though we may use them more. The rules yeah,
1: although, although what's interesting about this <clears throat> administration is, I think there seem to be more anonymous sources, more people willing to step forward, uh, you know, um, just from my own experience, in, in the White House, every White House has leaks, um, but the but the volume of leaks and the the, the sort of uh, uh, you know the willingness to step forward and and, and talk about the internal machinations uh, is really unusual.
2: Yeah, I well, I think that's true, and I think that uh, one reason is because there are so many different factions in the White House itself, uh, the way that that so-called team was uh, put together. Uh, was kind of haphazard, and, and the president himself didn't have a, they didn't a, have a political team, yeah. and they, people didn't have relationships, mm-hmm. and they were, only, uh, they were dealing with each other for the first time. And so there were different factions within the White House. And then when, within government itself, there are any number of people who are concerned about uh, things like the rule of law, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they want to make sure that the facts get out. Uh, so uh, I think there the, are al- several explanations Some of them
0: it. also have a sense, I think, that they're not going to survive. And if you look at the list of people who have left, and I think that if you think you're not going to survive in a volatile administration, you also want people to know where you're coming from. I think all of those things added. Like in that sense, it's a mix.
1: target-rich environment yeah. if you're covering yeah. uh, the, the institution. You, you talk about this issue of, uh, of truth, and we do have a president who has a pension for, for making stuff up. Uh, so how do you grapple with... Uh, that that question of well, do we just call it a lie? We
0: we use the word um, lie I think just a couple times, um, and in, in the case of the, and not not um, it's significantly most people don't remember um, when we used it and what the lie was, which tells me that we have to be very careful not to throw the the word around so loosely that people don't know what we're talking about. Um, I don't want the word. When was it? When? Wh- we used the word lie when Donald Trump, during the campaign, the first time we used it was w- during the campaign when he said that um, that Barack Obama, he had said over years that Barack Obama was not born in the United mm-hmm. States. He said, I have evidence of it. He said, have, I've hired private investigators to dig into it. Um, he, he sort of, it was a long-standing lie. And I thought when he finally got up in public and said, okay, I acknowledge he was born in the United States. I I concluded that was a demonstrable lie, that it was just clear that he had not hired private investigators. He had no evidence. I thought that was clear. What What I don't want to have happen is that we use that word so loosely that people don't remember, in fact, what he said. I would rather show what the president says and then, as the case warrants, show what the truth is than to have readers so preoccupied with whether or not the New York Times uses the word lie that they don't even remember what was said.
1: The most important thing is that we call
0: him out for what he says.
1: Marty, you, you, your uh, fact checkers uh, have been very busy yeah. uh, over the last <laughs> busier than ever. couple of years. And uh, just a few weeks ago, you uh, released your latest tally, or the paper did, uh, f- of 4,229. False or misleading claims in 559 <laughs> days in office. Now, some of those are blatant. Yeah. Some of them are more subjective. Yeah,
2: misleading, right?
1: And uh, I mean, how much attention do you pay to that?
2: Well, tagging thanks, that. Thankfully, it's not my job to keep track of yeah. that. We have to actually but, have a team that yeah. does that. So uh, that's. Uh, And so it's it's their job to do it. I certainly pay attention to their work and I think their work is extraordinarily rigorous and I think it's public service that they are doing that and that (coughs) that database is available to everybody today to see, uh, I mean look, truthfulness in government I think is extraordinarily important and I think it's important for us to call out when people are being misleading or actually lying. And so uh, and that's that's what we endeavor to do there.
1: Um, yeah, you call them false or misleading claims. Um, I, let, let me just ask you guys bluntly. I mean, do you think the president habitually lies?
2: Well, you know, it, <laughs> this gets into the, the, yeah. the use of the word lies. He, he has to know that what he's saying is false, and it's hard sometimes to get into his head. So we use the word lie, for example, when... Uh, uh, it became clear that the president had in fact dictated uh, the statement uh, for Don Jr. Uh, in trying to explain <clears throat> this meeting at Trump Tower with Russians who were uh, offering uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton, uh, they denied that they they denied that they had uh, uh, dictated it, uh, and the president had denied it. His sp- spokespeople have, had denied it, uh, and then they had acknowledged to the special counsel that in fact he had dictated it. So that was a clear lie. So those are the kinds of things where we try to apply, where we will apply the word lie. And in other instances, Lord knows what he thinks is true uh, at times. And uh, so we use the word falsehood. And I agree with Dean that it's important for us to focus on the actual substance of what's false rather than the language that's used uh, and whether we use lie in every... In fact,
0: I hate the fact that the the debate and discussion has gotten that the over the word over the use of the word lie has, yeah. been, has obscured a larger truth, if you will, which is, I mean, does it matter whether the New York Times or the Washington Post has used the word lie three times, seven times, ten mm-hmm. times, twenty times, or does it matter more that their fact checker has found four thousand examples of of misleading? And infra- does it
1: matter what four thousand two hundred 20, twenty does <laughs> it matter
0: what the what the use of the word is?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> the president's. It, whatever his strengths and weaknesses, one thing is for sure, he understands modern media and he understands how to dominate, uh, you know, if there were news cycles, how to dominate the news and how to change yeah. the meme uh, uh, with, a, with a tweet or, or a statement. Um, do you feel like you in sort of Pavlovian fashion then have to follow... Him, I mean, how, how do you make a judgment as to mm-hmm. how much credence to put into his his latest uh, his latest tweet, his latest statement, his latest uh, you know blast?
2: Well, I think we're learning as we as we go along. I think this is a new situation for all of us. We were learning throughout the campaign, and we're learning still during this administration. Right. There is no guidebook for this uh, this kind of a presidency, and so uh, we make mistakes. Uh, I think we're learning, from, we're learning from those mistakes. Look, I mean, I do think that the president used <laughs> this to some degree as a performance. Uh, and, you know, Neil Postman wrote his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, a couple of decades, some decades ago, about how we're moving toward the show quality of, of, of politics, and that the show has become the thing. And I think the president actually understands that and uses that uses that to his advantage. And so we have to understand that and understand understand right. that well. Some of the tweets are designed as distractions, and some of the tweets are actually a window into his mind. Right. Uh, and I think it's important <coughs> that we understand what his thinking is. And a lot of those tweets are a precursor to actual policy. And it's important that we pay attention to them.
0: And in the be in, uh, it, just yeah. to, um, I think the, to the point that we've changed in the beginning, it was such a novelty, right? The we, we both grew up in an era whenever the president said something, it was news, because presidents didn't say things that often. So to have a president— I can, I can tell
1: you, Dean, just to interrupt for <coughs> one second, as someone who worked uh, for a president, we, we, we thought every word mattered that, you know, presidents speak and they can send armies marching and markets right. tumbling, and we'd better be very cognizant right. of the words that he uses. So we came in
0: with, with, a, with a set of, I don't want to say rules, but with a set of beliefs, and it, and it was novel. And I think that we have learned over time that not every tweet is as important. Um, we've learned over time that he actually, for, for the president tweets five or six times a day, you can't treat each one the same. Though I do think we can't ignore them. I do think, as Marty said, they, they are handset what he believes. They are things that have to be challenged. They are often false statements. And, 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 and I would use the example of, of the one most recently where he, t- where he actually described one of his former aides as a dog. They do give a, a sense of the character of the president, and they do give a sense of, of how he deals with people, and I don't think that's unimportant.
1: Well, let me ask you about that, because, <clears throat> um, you know, one thing that's striking about you guys is you, you, you both have great uh, personal stories. Marty, you're the son of Jewish immigrants who originated in Germany. Uh, you're the son of Creole parents from uh, New Orleans, a, a person of color. Um, we have a president who has said incendiary things uh, about immigrants, about race. Uh, how do you, as, as people, how do you process that? And how does that impact how you uh, make decisions?
2: That's a good one. Well, uh, look, I mean, my, my father was born in Germany. He, he went to what was then Palestine, and my mother was born in what was then Palestine, became Israel. And, uh, and they left that country. <coughs> they were in Paris uh, for a couple of years and then came to the United States. Why did they in come here? My father believed in the American dream. That's what he wanted. He loved the opportunity of, of the United States. Uh, he was a true believer in and all of that and wanted to be—that's where he—, he it just suited him, I guess. So, uh, and he became a businessman and that's what, that's what he was about. And so, you know, I, mean, I think uh, I, as a kid, traveled a lot with my parents. My father was <clears> in <doing> the <throat> export business, so we, we traveled overseas. And uh, so I got around the world and you get exposed to lots of different kinds of people. And so, uh, you know, certainly for myself, I feel pretty accepting of lots of different, kind of different kinds of people and recognize that this country is made of uh, a lot of uh, people who came from a lot of different countries and a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, and, you know, I hope that, and I expect, that, and I believe that people are making the kinds of contributions that my parents made to this country.
1: So when you hear uh, this sort of uh, anti-immigrant, uh, steady anti-immigrant, uh, screed from the president and, and, and taking steps to reduce immigration and so on. Uh, how do you react to that personally? I'm the son of an immigrant as well, I should full disclosure. So,
2: Right, well, you know, look, I mean, I think that we are professionals and we treat this as, uh, as journalists. Uh, and we, in so many instances, sort of set aside, you know, whatever our personal feelings are about things. Uh, Look, I, the American public has the right to debate policies. Has the right to debate policy about immigration and all of that. And I believe in the I believe in the democratic uh, the democratic process uh, that there should be an honest debate about about these sorts of things. What what always concerns me, and it's not just relevant with regard to the immigration debate, is if you start demonizing people and, and, <clears throat> and drawing sweeping generalizations of who people are. Because we know, as both as individuals and as journalists, that when you actually dive into it, when you start talking to people, they don't, they're, they're, they don't fit the generalizations. They're all individuals with their own individual circumstances. And I think that it's important for us as journalists and probably important for policymakers to understand people as the human beings, as the individuals uh, they are.
1: I'm,
0: I'm. I would say I'm. I'm. I'm sensitive to the demonization of of groups. I mean, I grew up um, as a black kid in the in the segregated South, um, and I, and I am sensitive to, to when the president or anybody in a position of power makes sweeping statements about groups of people. Um, I do, uh, but the way I grew up gave me something else too, which is. My father had a had a small restaurant and bar in a in a black working class neighborhood in New Orleans, and I had never been any place and had never been exposed to anything until I became a journalist. I think if anything, that's given me sort of a, a deep and abiding belief in journalism. It it changed my life. It put me on a you know it, it exposed me to the world in a large way, um, and I think that that may be one reason I sort of stick to the tenets so closely. I just mm-hmm. believe in it. I believe that, that we have a role and that my role as editor of the New York Times in, in calling out powerful institutions, whether it's the president or the, you know, the head of Uber. I, I, I think, if anything, my upbringing gave me a, a sincere belief in that role, in the role of journalism.
1: So you mentioned that, that, <clears throat> that he, uh, he called uh, Omarosa in this past week a, a dog. Mm-hmm. Did you? view that as a a, as a racist comment
0: you know it's funny i have i have two reactions to that and i'm not i'm not skirting the issue my first reaction is when a when when somebody calls a black woman a dog my visceral reaction as a black man is to is to is to feel the sort of react the 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 pain and anger of a black man so here's where journalism comes in he actually calls everybody a dog yeah um, he's, called, um, he's called Ted Cruz a dog. He's called, yes, I feel, it. I feel it more because of who she was, but I also dig a little bit deeper and find that he uses that kind of language sort of pretty openly with a lot of people.
1: So you've both spoken about, and others have spoken about, uh, that the president should stop using the rhetoric he's using uh, toward journalists. Uh, But Leslie Stahl had something interesting to report recently, the correspondent for 60 Minutes. She said off-camera after she was interviewing, uh, I think, then-President-elect Trump, she asked him why he bashed the media so relentlessly, and he said, I do it to discredit you all and demean you all so that when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. And he's had some success with that, hasn't he? At least with his base of supporters. Uh, he has had some success. It's a strategy.
2: Yeah, and I think that that was an honest answer on his his part, is that he wants to disqualify the press as an independent arbiter of fact, Uh, and that's what he's trying to do. Uh, You remember, at some point, he said, if you see any negative polls on me, they're fake. I mean, so he basically remember when he was
1: quoting them all the time during the he quoted the the polls when they were favorable,
2: and then when when the polls are unfavorable, he says that they're (coughs) fake. So he does not want there to be an independent arbiter of fact. He certainly doesn't want the press to be that arbiter. He doesn't want scientists to be that arbiter. He doesn't want the courts to be that arbiter. He doesn't want the intelligence agencies to be the arbiter. He wants himself and his his White House to be the arbiter of fact. And, and that is exactly what he's trying to achieve, and I think he was incredibly honest in that answer to Leslie Stahl. Yeah.
1: On this notion of the White House being the arbiter of fact, um, the White House briefing used to be a place where reporters would go and get facts and get official administration uh, policy. Is that still true? Um, less so
0: to be honest. I mean, I think that there, there, there have been numerous instances in which the two White House press secretaries have acknowledged that they knew um, that they said things that weren't true, less so. I still think we have to cover it. There's a clamor for us to, like, not even go to the press briefings, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I sort of understand that. But again, this is the person, the press, the press secretary, who speaks for the most powerful human being in the world. Um, I don't think it's our job to make a political statement by not showing up. I think our job is to find stuff out. Our job is to listen, test, fact check, um, do the best we can to make sure they're telling the truth. But our job is not to send a political statement to the world by not showing up. It's
1: interesting. In This last week, uh, the question came up as to whether the president had used the N-word, and the press secretary said she couldn't guarantee-
0: That was a remarkable moment. That he hadn't, And and,
1: and she simply said, Uh, She simply said the president has spoken, and this is what he he said, almost as if she wanted to create a little zone for herself, uh, should this turn out to be the case.
0: Well, if you look at the the things that she has said that turned out that she had to back off from, I don't blame her for wanting to create a little bit of a zone, but that was a remarkable moment in the life of press secretaries, I mean, to, to actually say, to leave open the possibility that the president said one of the most vile things and that it might even be on tape was a pretty remarkable moment and I'm glad we were there to cover it.
1: You know, um, your reporters uh, are in this modern age, not just uh, writers, uh, but also their presences on social media, uh, on cable television. what, what is your level of concern? I know you promulgated yeah. some rules uh, <clears throat> related yeah. Yeah. Uh, to this. Um, uh, you know, I was trained in the day when I was a political reporter yeah. to be very, to be as neutral as I could be, whatever my views were. And, uh, and I was, uh, you know, we were, we, were, we were scrupulous about that, but it's hard to do in this envi- environment when you're invited to opine yeah. in these uh, settings and especially given the environment uh, with this president, right.
0: I, I I think the reason I put those rules in place, I think our power, and you should explain what the rule is. The, the rules is essentially, I became upset, as did others in the newsroom, that um, that people were tweeting and on social media, making political comments and sort of revealing their their political beliefs, um, and that made me uncomfortable. Um, and essentially, we 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 put two large restrictions. Don't don't. Don't talk about your political beliefs and be a good colleague, essentially. don't. My, my view is our power and our influence comes from our independence. If we are seen by the larger world as, as having a very strong point of view, nobody, for instance, would believe it if Breitbart broke an investigative story. Nobody would believe it. Because people think Breitbart comes from a, polit- a certain political perspective, and they do. If we break a big story, what I want people to see is, wow, that's a big story. That's important. That affects the dialogue, the, the whole conversation. I don't want them to see this is a lefty or a, or a centrist publication. I want them to focus on the story. And I don't really care what the political beliefs are of most of my staff. What I care about is, is that role as an independent operator.
1: Marty, some of your reporters, and some of yours as well, are contributors on cable and therefore in the, in the Scrum. What, what instructions do you give them? Are there any limits on, on them?
2: There are limits, and the basic rule is that they should behave on cable television and in their social media accounts the way that they would behave uh, anywhere, anywhere else. Uh, And we expect professional professional behavior. Now, it's not to say that there haven't been breaches of that that policy. Uh, Clearly, there have, and we talk to people about Mm -hmm. that. The tricky part these days is that, uh, and certainly in social media, people they want to the public wants to identify with an individual. They don't want to. They don't necessarily identify with the institution of the Washington Post. They. They like uh, this person, or they like that person, and they wanna follow those people. And so in social media, you're trying to convey a bit of your personality, uh, and not just sort of the institutional face, and uh, and sometimes people go over the line in, in trying to do that. I think most people uh, handle it appropriately, uh, and they too are learning as we, as we go, because this is new territory for them. Uh, but the general rule is that they should behave in social media and on on cable television the way that they would behave anywhere else and i'm talking about the, the news it, side because we also have a p- people from right. the opinion side who are on <clears throat> who are on cable television and neither That's dean it. nor i are in charge of our opinion departments we don't mm-hmm. oversee the editorials we don't oversee the op-ed page the letters that run uh the blo- uh, the opinion so you bloggers, probably hear about them hear. Well, we do because <laughs> you, people assume that you're right. in charge of yeah. that but these, the, the, these
1: uh, you, you talk about uh, social media as a, a projection of personality, uh, and certainly uh, when people see your reporters on television, they become personages. How, and this leads me to the question of how concerned you are about the safety of your reporters. Uh, right now. Your publisher uh, yeah. met with the president recently and uh, delivered a message about this rhetoric of enemy of the people uh, and so on, and we've seen some of the, uh, uh, some of the scenes at, at his rallies. Yeah. Uh, how, how much has that been discussed uh, in your newsrooms? What steps have you taken that are above and beyond what you've had to do before?
0: I'm I'm deeply concerned, and not only concerned, by the way, about um, what happens inside the United States at at some of the volatile Trump rallies. I I think that the president has sent a message to despots abroad that you can disrespect the press. We've never had a president so open. We've had presidents attack the press. We've never had a president go on foreign soil and attack the press. So both of us have to manage newsrooms with people who operate in the third world. Both of us manage newsrooms with people who cover, you know, governments that don't like the press. It's, I can't tell you how concerning it is that this president has essentially told told those governments, you can beat up the press, you can call them enemies of the people. It's deeply concerning. We provide more security. I'm obviously not gonna go into a lot of detail, but from where I sit, that's one of the most concerning things about this administration. How can my correspondent in Cairo, who covers a government that's often antagonistic to the press. How can he make the case for the First Amendment and the power of the press and for covering that government independently when we have a president of the United States who says the things he says about the press?
1: And uh, we've heard leaders in Hungary and Poland and Putin himself now mimicking the words uh, fake news. Have you, uh, have there been uh, threats or, uh, to... Uh, reporters in, oh, in sure. your newsroom that you've had to act
2: on? Oh, sure, yeah. I, I too, can't get into details, but uh, certainly <clears> during <throat> the campaign, uh, there were an extraordinary number of threats, great concern about the security of uh, our people who were covering the campaign. Uh, and uh, now, even during the administration, there are similar concerns. You know, look, I just spoke uh, a few weeks ago at a an event to uh, memorialize the Five individuals at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, yes. who, were, who were killed. Uh, I think four out of five were, were journalists. Uh, and there was a person with a grievance against journalists who just walked into their office and started shooting and didn't really care who he shot, just as long as he was shooting people. Uh, you know, and I, I, certainly I'm, I'm not saying the president's responsible for that because I, there's nothing to connect the president to that. On the other hand, I think that the president. Should not be creating an environment uh, that describes the press uh, as an enemy, as disgusting, as scum, as the lowest form of uh, as the lowest form of humanity, and then the lowest form of life, uh, as traitors to the as traitors to the country. I mean, that's the most extreme rhetoric that you can that you can imagine, and and the signal that it sends to uh, all it requires is just one individual uh, uh, to to do something. Uh, that is a that's really concerning, and he really ought to stop it. Now, the more we say stop it, the more that he seems he to do it and enjoy it. Uh, but I think that that's a well, you, uh, that's you, really dangerous.
1: You guys have this weird symbi- symbiotic relationship with him. Uh, he attacks the press; the press is vigorous in reporting um, on him, and you guys have both your newspapers have become. Even though he calls you failing, uh, you've you've gained exponentially in terms of readership uh, since this administration began.
0: Right, that's true. And I, and I, we've also gained one one other thing. I would say, um, you know, I th- there was a time when I think news- because of the changing economics of the of the newspaper business in particular, when I think we'd lost our mojo a little bit. We had declining audiences. Um, in the last year or two. Our mission has become clearer. Um, it was always clear to us. <laughs> it's become clearer to our readers. For, for all of the attacks on the press, by the way, it's and by this president, it's got to say something that our audiences have gotten larger. That means that people in the sort of cacophony of stuff in the air, in the fake news and the made up stuff, that when people want to find out the truth, they do come to these institutions that have set themselves up, The Times, The Post, The Journal, and others, that have set themselves up as a as a as standard bearers and as institutions that try to get at the truth and as institutions that sort of have held on to their soul. And I think that's, I mean, that's great,
1: right? Uh, at the same time, Axios uh, released a poll recently that 70% Uh, of of the people they surveyed said, traditional major news uh, sources report news they know to be fake, false, or misleading. And just this week, the Quinnipiac poll showed that 51% of Republicans believe
2: that the news media is the enemy of the people. These are disturbing numbers. They are, I mean, actually, if you look at different surveys and look at different things, things will overall, actually, in the last year or so, overall trust in the media has actually gone up, oddly enough. Now it's highly polarized among Republicans. There's a very low level of trust in mainstream media outlets. Uh, among Democrats, the level of trust has actually gone up, and among Independents, it's gone up somewhat. So when you look at overall, there's been somewhat of an increase in trust in in, in the media. Uh, and the overall levels of trust for the New York Times and the Washington Post are maybe not what we would want them to be, but they're not they're not bad actually. So. You know, I mean, I think that it, it is concerning, and I think that, you know, there are things that we need to do about that. Uh, number one is we need to talk more about who we are, because yeah. the stereotypes that have been drawn of, uh, of <clears throat> people who work in our profession are grossly inaccurate. Right. Uh, you know, we have people from, who came from all walks of life, uh, and they don't fit this stereotype. We have to talk more about the work we do and be more transparent about that work and explain it, how we, how, how we, how we came to publish what, what it is we published. Uh, we, have to do, uh, we have to talk more about uh, the work that actually helped people because long before this president started talking about the forgotten men and women of America, uh, journalists that. were writing about the forgotten men and women of America. We're writing about abuses, people who had suffered at, at uh, because of the a, a larger and more powerful system, people who were abused by powerful individuals and institutions for one reason or another. Uh, and we have to. And finally, we have to do more of that work. Uh, we have to dedicate ourselves to doing that work, uh, which means getting out in the country, talking to people, writing about stories that have not do, nothing to do with the politics of the moment in Washington, but have a lot to do with the, the, the lives of ordinary Americans. And those are the steps that I believe that we need to take uh, to uh, reassure the American public that we are doing our jobs properly.
1: One, one of the questions I have is, uh, what were the failures of, uh, of the news media in terms of anticipating mm-hmm. uh, what was uh, going to uh, happen in 2016? Um, when on the day after the election, did you find yourselves asking that question? What did we miss? Sure. How did we not sure. see that? Because the impression that was conveyed was that uh, this was a very unlikely d- uh, outcome of that sure. election.
0: I think, I think the story the, the, the press missed, if you will, and I'm not sure it's a, quite the story of Donald Trump. I think, it's the, I think the story we didn't tell enough were the, were, was the story of the events that led up to Donald Trump. I don't think we quite had a handle on how much anger there was in the country after the financial collapse of 2008. I think we covered it. I think if you looked at both of our papers and if you looked at other institutions, you found stories i don't think we i'll speak for myself i don't i don't think we had our, our our handle on how much anger there was in the country how much of a desire there was for change how upset people were with with the elites and just how much of the lingering effects of the economic crisis were. i don't think we got that i don't think that's a by the way i don't think that's a as much a political story as i think that's a story of understanding the country
1: yeah well i think it's also a story of where we live um yes. you know gary hart who you both remember, the former senator from Colorado presidential candidate, <laughs> told me something years ago that that had stuck with me and it made and, and the wisdom of it continues to resonate he said washington 's always the last to get the news yeah. and uh, and he's, he, he was right, and i 've sensed it in the years that I spent in Washington. I felt disconnected from the experience yeah. of uh, people uh, in the rest of the country. One of the reasons I think is Uh, we've become more reliant. I mean, one is budgets and it's harder to get people out, but we've become so reliant on polls. I've quoted them here, and it feels sometimes like we're covering polls and not people, and that we're not uh, getting as deeply into the fabric of the country As we silo ourselves into different communities,
2: right? Well, I I totally agree with that, and that's what I was talking about before: is the the obligation of our our obligation to get out into the country and talk to ordinary Americans about their ordinary concerns. And uh, I mean, Washington is a bubble. I mean, I've only been there for five and a half years, so I'm not a creature of Washington by any means. And so, uh, and when I look, I worked in. I worked in Florida, I worked in California, I worked in Massachusetts, I uh, worked in New York. So, um, you know, and I was, I've, was always skeptical of, of Washington, always felt that Washington didn't really understand uh, the rest of the country. Uh, and I think one of our jobs as journalists is not only to convey what's happening in Washington to the rest of the, to the, rest of the country, but actually more importantly, to tell Washington what's happening in the country And uh, I think that's our special obligation. I also,
0: if if I can add, I also think that's a function of the of the decline of local newspapers. Um, It used to be, I I agree with 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 everything you said about the disconnect with Washington. But it used to be that you had these great, powerful local news organizations that, you know, and we probably leaned on them too much. The big national newspapers, like the Post and the Times, you know, could get a glimpse of what was going on, and whether it was. Pennsylvania or Montana or Louisiana by reading those papers by, you know, the first stop you would make if you would visit Louisiana was to sit down with Iris Kelso, who was the mm-hmm. great political reporter for the Times-Picayune. All those institutions have, have, are collapsing. All, none of those institutions have the same reach they have. There are whole swaths of America that aren't covered. That puts more pressure on us but I also think that's a that's one reason that we we may not quite have our fingers on the pulse of the country. Maybe yeah. nobody does. Anymore. Yeah,
1: I want to talk about that a little more in a minute. Um, <clears throat> the, you know, one of the things that w- w- now we have these analytics as well as polling. You know, Nate Silver became famous at your newspaper as a prognosticator using analytics, and and uh, Nate Cohn is continuing yeah. uh, in that. Um, and people look at the. During the end of that presidential race, people were looking at where the thermometer was on on uh, on, on the race and what the uh, you know what the percentage chances were that Hillary Clinton would win, and they were pretty high. It always included the disclaimer that yeah. you know if you have a three and four chance of winning, you have a, a one in four chance of uh, of losing. Um, but is that a service? I know it's of interest. It brings eyeballs and. Marty mentioned before in the social media age, you know, you've got to get eyeballs. But uh, were people sort of unintentionally misled by that? And were you guys misled as editors? Did you yeah. just assume that, yeah, Hillary Clinton's probably going to win this election?
0: I, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I honestly think we can sort of, I mean, for us, it was the famous needle that made people think that she, that she couldn't be beat. I, I think I would do that needle over again. I think it was, the, the presentation was too simplistic, but I don't think that's why Hillary Clinton lost the election. I think that I think as long as we sort of get too caught up in that, we're going we're gonna to miss the larger story we were talking about two minutes ago. We're going to miss the story about the changes in the country. Um, I, I do think it does a service. I do think it, it, first off, it generates interest in politics, generates interest in the campaigns. I do think we want people engaged and deeply interested in politics. And look, you would have to say yourself, I think part of politics is a little bit of sport. Yes, it's a sport with a much more important outcome than an NFL yeah. game, but there is a little bit of sport. And I, and I don't mind people paying attention to that as long as we give them the other stuff too. As long as we give them the whole array of COVERAGE FROM OUT IN THE COUNTRY, COVERAGE OF THE ECONOMY, AND COVERAGE OF THE IMPACT IT HAS ON PEOPLE'S LIVES. So I, think
2: every, I THINK EVERYBODY THOUGHT THAT IT WAS GOING TO BE A PRETTY CLOSE ELECTION. THEY MAY HAVE ASSUMED THAT HILLARY CLINTON MIGHT PULL IT OUT, uh, BUT I DON'T THINK THAT PEOPLE uh, ASSUMED THAT IT WAS uh, GOING TO BE A RUNAWAY VICTORY. Uh, AND IN FACT, it WAS A CLOSE <coughs> ELECTION. I MEAN, SHE WON THE POPULAR VOTE BY ABOUT 3 MILLION VOTES. Uh, really what made the difference was about less than 80,000 eighty uh, thousand 80, votes in three states. Uh, so um, it was a, we're a very divided country. Uh, it was a close election. Uh, I think that on election night, none of us presupposed who was going to win that election.
1: Do you think you guys
2: uh, covered uh, her
1: differently because of a presumption that she was going to win? I know you've been criticized mm-hmm. because uh, you... You uh, were uh, deeply into the email story, yeah. uh, didn't, uh, didn't uh, cover the Russia yeah. story.
0: Um, you know, I, I actually don't think so. I think if, I mean, I think that's, a, that's a, an easy thing to think. But I think if you looked at the coverage of Donald Trump, it was really aggressive. You know, we did, before the Access Hollywood tape, we wrote about Donald Trump and women. We wrote about his tax returns. Um, we did write about... Russian, Russia's attempt to influence the election here and elsewhere. I think there was pretty aggressive coverage of Donald Trump. I think anybody who says they're shocked at the Donald Trump presidency um, was not reading the mainstream press. There, was nothing, there is nothing about the Donald Trump presidency that does not resemble the, the coverage that Donald Trump got. We covered her aggressively, too. She did have a different, longer track record. She'd been the secretary of state. I don't I don't I actually disagree. I don't I don't think we treat it or different.
1: We- you raise an interesting point. I think uh, you know uh, you can say whatever you want about Donald Trump, but he is who he is. I yeah. mean, he is no different as president than he was as a candidate. He didn't right. fly under false colors no, right. and say he was one thing and then govern in a different way. I actually think that's part of his appeal to his right. his base of supporters. It's he, this is the guy we elected. Yeah. Let me switch subjects and talk to you about uh, 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 how one covers national security issues. This is the most, it seems to me, fraught or one of the most fraught things that an editor in a national paper has to do. Because you guys, you you do investigative reporting not just uh, about other aspects of government but also about that aspect of government. And when you get a good story, inevitably some senior government official as they're always referred to, uh, will come to you and say, you are going to jeopardize national security. Uh, You were faced with that when you arrived at the post. One of the first big stories you handled was the Edward Snowden uh, uh, story, Mm -hmm. which uh, people in the intel community still say was very damaging to them. This was the story about the NSA Mm -hmm. and uh, and their covert surveillance program, did did you have a hesitation about running that story? Did you have to weigh what you were being told about what the impact of its release would be?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, it's not like we published this cavalierly without having those kinds of discussions. Uh, We felt in that instance that there was a, um, you know, you're looking at the balance between uh, individual privacy and national security, and decisions had been made in the government uh, that represented a greater intrusion and a very significant intrusion into individual privacy in the interests in interest of national security without any public debate having, having taken place. Uh, President Obama himself said after our publication uh, that this is a debate, important debate, and that it needed to be had. Uh, and that's how we felt at the time. Uh, this is a debate that, was, that did never, never occur. The decisions were made within, the, within, within government itself uh... and so uh... we felt that it was important to publish uh... some of that information we didn't publish all of that information uh... we always went to the intelligence agencies to tell them what it is we intended to publish they always had the opportunity to make that judgment
1: as to what to publish and what not to publish
2: well you know this is it can be subjective obviously uh... but we we don't we don't disclose you know for example individual the names of individual intelligence agents overseas that's not something that we're going to do mm-hmm. even if we had access to it and we do have access to that sort of information
1: though others time. would argue that if you if there's enough. If there are enough clues, then you can
2: right. But in this instance, there aren't. There's no example uh, where any intelligence agents any intelligence agent was threatened uh, or at risk because of something that we published. We always went to the intelligence a- intelligence agencies and I told them about every detail that would be in that story, and they had every opportunity to argue against publication. And mm-hmm. while we never withheld a story or the thrust of a story. Uh, we did withhold certain details that the intelligence agencies objected to.
1: Dean, you, you, years earlier, you had sort of a, for, someone came to you with a forerunner of yeah. the Snowden yeah. uh, story, a, a different source, and you decided not to publish. W- this w- is the ages ago at yes. the LA Times? Yeah, at the LA Times.
0: Yeah, that was an easy one. We couldn't nail the story. Um, we, had, we had someone come to us and say, when I was the editor of the Los Angeles Times, that to say that there was evidence that the NSA um, was spying on Americans from a from an, op, an AT&T operation in San Francisco. That was an easy call. I had like five or six reporters on it for months and months, and we just couldn't we couldn't confirm it. I do. F- for me, by the way, in making this decision, the 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 bar is is really high to not publish. Our role is to publish, and to me, the, the, the easiest call, besides that one, when you don't have the story, is you don't publish anything that gets anybody killed. It's got to be demonstrable. The government can be cavalier about saying that a story is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I would say in almost, there are very few instances in which they've been able to make a convincing case. You don't not publish because it's going to jeopardize a relationship with a foreign government. That's a, that's a political reason. That's not our call, this is my view. Only if the government can prove, and we're assuming the story is worth publishing, right? Everything, whether it's Snowden or WikiLeaks, the assumption is if we're sitting down with the government, there's a public service reason for publishing it. To me, the only powerful reason is it's gonna get somebody killed. And
2: I, I would make another point, by the way, is that um, uh, someone like Edward Snowden has another option. He can go to WikiLeaks or some other outlet like that and have the entire thing published without any filter whatsoever, without us exercising right. any sort of editorial judgment about what should and shouldn't be published, <clears throat> without any conversations with the intelligence agencies about about the risks to individual agents or to sources and methods and what have you. So uh, that's available. Uh, obviously that's been used on any number of occasions. And um, just because we might choose not to publish doesn't mean it won't be published in fact probably more will be published without any editorial judgment whatsoever
1: you know we talked earlier about um, what your role is in covering uh, this administration and i think of um, i think of some uh, stories that uh, may not have been uh, known uh, but for the reporting that you've done the june 6th meeting At Trump Tower between Donald Trump Jr. and the others and the Russians, Um, uh, and the emails that led up to that was a New York Times story. I'm not even. It was reported. We'll never know because uh, Bob Mueller is the sphinx of Washington. That uh, (laughs) that uh, you that that they may not have been aware uh, of this. Um, And uh, Marty, your paper uh, early in the administration. reported on, Michael Flynn, and he may have been National Security Advisor for some time, uh, but for the fact that you wrote about that, what are some of the other important stories that you think have been impactful over the last two years that, uh, uh, that speak to why this uh, shining a light in dark corners, as you put it, uh, is important to the country?
0: If I could use one that's not about Trump. Yes. Um, I mean, just to change the subject. I mean, the Harvey Weinstein story. He'll be story. disappointed. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he, he certainly will be. Maybe not with the example I'm going to use, though. Um, I mean, the Harvey Weinstein story, um, which, which opened up a whole debate um, about powerful men and their abuses of women, I think was a, was, was a story that would not have happened if it weren't for The New York Times. The New Yorker, and in the case of Roy Moore, the the Washington Post. I think that that is a debate the country would not be having were it not for the press. And um, and I think to me that's the most powerful example of public service journalism. Something that not only, to be frank, importantly knocks some important men off their perches, but caused the country to have an important amount of soul searching about those relationships.
1: You know, you uh, you you raise a point that uh, that I want to ask you about. Um, Does Trump get too much coverage? I mean, are we too Trump centric? He is good for readership. (laughs) He is good for cable TV. You guys are in the news business. It is a calling. It is also a business. Uh, Is there too much coverage of him? And are you concerned a little bit about Trump exhaustion uh, at some point?
2: Well, there is a Trump exhaustion factor and yeah, from time to time we sit back and think, are we doing too much on him? But he is uh, uh, the most, he does hold a position that represents the most, it's probably the most powerful position on this earth. Uh, So it's not, this is not someone we can ignore. Uh, His actions, like like them or not, uh, have worldwide impact as we see every single day. And so I think that we have a uh, a real obligation to cover him thoroughly and cover him in yeah. depth to hold him accountable, uh, as we as as we try to do all of the time. I mean, just uh, with reference to your previous question, I mean we uh, disclosed that the president himself had turned over intelligence to the Russians when uh, he was visited by the foreign minister and the, and the Russian ambassador in in, in the White House, uh, and that wasn't uh, uh, the intelligence agencies uh, were shocked. Uh, at that uh, and it became known that this uh, made clear that this intelligence came from Israel and uh, and so that would not have been disclosed were it not for the Washington Post. You know uh, I uh,
1: as you guys know grew up in the newspaper business uh, mm-hmm. back at the Chicago Tribune in those halcyon days when local news was still thriving uh, before the internet you guys grew up in journalism as well and um, I, I, I want I wanted to ask you what drew you to it. In the first place, you were both kids uh, when you started uh, reporting. And so this is a lifelong passion. Still kids. Passion. <laughs> I didn't, okay, well, I'll give you that. Relative to me, yes, we're all kids, but uh, what, what, what attracted you to reporting?
2: You know, it's hard to trace these sorts of things. I think, uh, as we were talking earlier, uh, my, as my, my parents were immigrants to the country, they were keenly interested in what was happening in this country uh, and what was happening around the world. Uh they had a daily uh news habit. Uh we got the daily newspaper, which was I grew up in Tampa, Florida. Uh they got the, the, the local newspaper, uh they watched the local news on television every night, they watched the national news, the Huntley Brinkley report uh back in the back yes. in the day. And they received When we
1: all watched essentially yeah. the same things and yeah, we had one th-
2: national conversation. Right, exactly. There were three networks at the time and that was that was it. And so uh and they received Time magazine every week uh in the house. Uh, and so that was part of our, that was part of the environment in which I grew up is sort of an interest in, in public affairs and a news habit, and I think that's what got me interested in it. Did, uh, Dean, you guys sort of, you, you took different routes, uh, you
1: went off to college, you got a Business degree along. I guess you were studying journalism as well. Yes. Right? Yes. Did you get the business degree to placate your parents? Who no, not, not, <laughs> <laughs> not, not,
2: not, not at all. My parents were letting me do whatever I wanted to do. Well, <laughs> as long as I would get out of the house and earn my own, earn my own way, they didn't really care. Uh, they were happy to, you know, have me just move on and, 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 and start my career, whatever it might be. No, my thinking was, uh, I knew two things. One is that I knew that journalism was becoming more specialized at the time. And I thought that it would be good for me to have a specialty. And I was interested in business and economics. So I studied it. The other is I couldn't be sure that things would work out in journalism (laughs) and that I probably should have a fallback. So uh, getting an MBA uh, seemed to make uh, sense to me. So those were the two reasons for
1: me. This goes back to the fundamental difference between you guys, because you couldn't wait to be a journalist. You dropped out of college and you went yeah. home to New Orleans yeah. and you became a reporter.
0: So I stumbled on journalism and I went, I had never been outside of, I'd never been on an airplane until I went to Columbia on a on scholarship. I'd never been outside of Louisiana. Um, and then I took, I was so homesick. I took time off to, to work as an intern at the afternoon paper in New Orleans. And I thought, this is it. I fell in love with it. Um, and and it's been transformation. What what made what made you fall in First off, I thought um, there were so many bizarre characters in the newsroom. Great place. Just, it was like yeah. anthropology, right? Not not to mention in, in uh, Louisiana. Yes, that's right. Well, there were bizarre characters all over Louisiana. I I also thought it opened up. I mean, I literally had spent my whole life in one part of New Orleans. I had never spent any time in the Garden District where my father had been a mailman. Um, I, I just didn't know whole parts of it. Suddenly the city yeah. was opened up to me in ways that, that I couldn't imagine yeah. let alone the you know the sexy stuff like you get to sit down at a press conference with the mayor I mean I was going into criminal courts and covering trials I remember you know walking in and seeing a kid I'd grown up with on trial it was just it was like this yeah. dramatic opening up of the world to me
1: Yeah you you uh, I didn't realize until I was uh, reading up for this conversation that you were the recipient of maybe one of the greatest quotes in American political history, this not the most tasteless, not, not the most tasteful quote, but tell that story. See, I'm
0: used to politicians who say weird things, So, um, <laughs> and I want this to be in my obituary, so I repeat it every chance I, get. I was on I was covering Edwin Edwards's return to politics. He was the governor of Louisiana, this very colorful guy. His nickname, which we could not use at the time, but we can
1: now use, was the Silver Zipper to give you an idea (laughs) what
0: kind of guy this was.
1: And that did not apply to his mouth.
0: It did not apply to his (laughs) mouth. Um, And I was sitting in the back of the campaign bus with him, just the two of us. We had just done a poll at the time, Spiccune, that had him with 60% of the vote. So I said, any way you lose this election. He said, the only way I lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. So I got that quote. I want to make sure that's in my obituary. (laughs) I can make sure it's in my obituary in the Times. You have to make sure it's in the post.
1: Did he know he was on the record at the time? Oh. He said Loved stuff it, like this all the yeah. time. He, and in, fact, in fact,
0: my nightmare was that when he saw my reaction, which was like this, <laughs>
1: that he would say it
0: again before I got it in the paper.
1: Yeah, which, you, you guys uh, were both uh, prodigies. You became the business editor at the LA Times at 29. You went to Chicago to my old paper at the Tribune, won a, a Pulitzer Prize there. And you both turned on to that editorial track. Um, I always thought that reporting was the best job in journalism. Why did you guys decide that you wanted to be editors? Uh,
2: I think (laughs) reporting probably still is the best job in journalism, at least I think that some days uh, when uh, I'm dealing with the kinds of things that I might have to deal with from day to day. Uh, I was pulled into it uh, well before I expected to be. Um, I was working in New York as a business reporter for the LA Times. Uh, I was asked to come back as, uh, t- uh, during the summers to help with editing. Uh, people thought I was good at it uh, and then ultimately they asked me to come back and i be a deputy business editor and then I became business editor. And so um, I just ended up that way uh, well before. It wasn't a conscious decision on my part uh, so I was sucked into it. It was something that I anticipated doing at a, at a later date uh, because I had been editor of my high school newspaper, I had been editor of my college newspaper, uh, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed having an impact on uh, the entire product, uh, everything that we were offering the public, as opposed to just one individual story. I How about had, you, Dean? I, I,
1: I heard your interview with Jay-Z, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it struck me that here's a guy who would like to be out there reporting. I had yeah. no desire to be an editor.
0: I had mm-hmm. the, I was the national investigative reporter for the New York Times. I was having a blast and they forced me to become an editor. I'm still not sure. The the executive editor, Joe Lelival, called me in and he said, we'd like you to become deputy metro editor. And I said, no thanks, that's really flattering. He said, would you think about it over the weekend? I came back that Monday and I said, I thought about it, I really don't want to do it. And he said, would you think about it a couple more days? (laughs) And now I understand that, now that I have his job. Um, And I'm not, I, I think he thought that I was somebody who would be good at, at managing people. I think he thought of me as somebody who maybe um, had a larger vision, but I, I had no desire to be an editor, and I think being a reporter is, is a lot of fun.
1: Do you, are there days when you guys say, man, I wish I was, I, I, I wanna jump in and, and report this story? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We can say that uh, in stereo, yes. yes. <laughs> <clears throat> um, you, you, uh, you went uh, to the Miami Herald, Mm-hmm. Uh covered two huge stories down there in a, in a brief tenure down there, Elian Gonzalez and uh, the recount. Committed yeah. a ton of your paper's resources to trying to find out who actually won Florida in, in 2000, 2000 in the yeah. Gore-Bush race. Turned out to be Bush, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, that was when I became editor of the Miami Herald yes. in 2000. And uh, we had both the Elian Gonzalez case and the 2000 presidential election. Oh. Uh, and uh, when the U.S. Supreme Court had determined that there would be no recount, we decided to go ahead and conduct a recount ourselves, uh, working with an accounting, a major accounting firm. And we went to every single county, all of the 67 counties in Florida. And under the Florida, an expansive public records law in Florida, thankfully, uh, was available. We could look at, examine every single ballot, and we examined every single ballot. And uh, we concluded uh, that uh, Bush won that election. Uh, and had there been a recount, he would have won that election. They, there was a subsequent, at the same time, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the networks and the Associated Press were doing uh, their own recount. Uh, they were following us; we were ahead. I'm p- proud to say. I wasn't at the um, times. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, and they came to the same conclusion. Uh, they published <clears throat> their results uh, after 9/11, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and so it kind of got. Some of that stuff got lost in in all of 9-11, but yes, we concluded that George W. Bush would have won.
1: And then you went to the Boston Globe, and uh, famously uh, you uh, uh, promoted an investigation into pedophilia in the church. I say famously because it became the subject of a movie you, you're you're an unlikely movie star, I have to say. I wouldn't yeah. say that. No. All right. Well, that's fine, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll we'll be kind.
2: Uh, but uh, I'm not going to say thank you to that. By the way.
1: But um, you, uh, but this investigation really rocked uh, the establishment in Boston, where the Archdiocese of Boston uh, is is so powerful, and you found uh, pervasive patterns of abuse of children. I thought of you uh, this week when there were revelations in Pennsylvania of uh, another massive scandal of the, same, of the same sort. And there was a, a man, an 82- or 3-year-old man who was one of the people who, um, who came forward to start this, who said he, he read the Boston Globe stories in 2002, and that's when he thought, I, I, have, to, uh, I have to come forward. Um, what, what, uh, what prompted you to want to uh, delve into what was, you know, an obviously fraught uh, story? I'm sure you were warned off it.
2: Well, you know, yes. Uh, th- I mean, look, the, the Catholic Church was the most powerful institution in New England at the time. Uh, and uh, this is in 2001 uh, that we launched the investigation about six weeks before 9-11. We didn't publish until, early January of 2002. Uh, but when I arrived, there was a case that was underway. It was a priest by the name of John Gagan. He had been accused of abusing as many as 80, 80 kids. Uh, his uh, uh, lawyer, The lawyer for the plaintiff said that uh, the Cardinal himself, Cardinal Law, was aware of this abuse and yet continually reassigned uh, uh, this particular priest. Uh, the church said at the time that this was these were baseless charges, these were irresponsible. Uh, and at the end of a column that was written by a Boston Globe columnist the day before I started work, uh, she said the truth may never be known because the documents that might reveal the truth, the internal documents of the church, are under court seal. Um, and so, on my first day of work uh, at the first meeting, the first day, uh, yeah. After everybody talked about what they were working on, I asked what we were doing to follow up on this on this particular case, uh, and. And I said, couldn't we get at the truth? One side was saying one thing and the other side was saying something else. And then somebody said, well, you know, the documents are under seal. And I said, I did know that because I had just read that in the the (laughs) column. But had we considered the possibility of going to court to try to unseal those documents? And uh, that ended up launching this investigation that certainly took us to January of 2002 when we published our first story, uh, but then we published h- many hundreds of stories after, after that, a thorough investigation. And it wasn't just a matter of how much abuse was taking place by the priests who abused. But the cover-up. Uh, but the cover-up and yeah. the, the systemic problems. Which is what church, we
1: saw in Pennsylvania. Which is exactly the, it's what it is. Global, it's a global crisis for the church now that started uh, uh, really, uh, becoming an issue in the forefront of public discussion with your, just as as you point out, uh, the work you did on Weinstein uh, started a movement. That's the power of journalism. So let me ask you, you were at the LA Times. You were the editor of the LA Times. You got fired from that job because you refused to make cuts yeah. in the newsroom. You both had to make cuts. You had to make them at the Globe. I'm sure your business degree was useful in terms of <laughs> trying to to deal with that. Uh, But it does speak to the state of local journalism, which you mentioned before. Uh, All across the country, we've seen these newspapers and news organizations that were dominant uh, in their communities and provided a great deal of, I mean, The Globe's a great example uh, of what local newspapers have done over centuries. but the new, the advertising base is gone. Yeah. Uh, the internet has taken away the classified ads that were the lifeblood of these uh, papers. W- what is the meaning of that to the country? And where is that going? Who's going to provide that, uh, that, that, you know, that for, beacon in the future? For, for all of the
0: emphasis on Donald Trump's attacks on the press, I think the longest lasting um, and most impactful shift in journalism is the decline of local news. I mean, I think it means there are whole swaths of the country. I mean, when I started in New Orleans, there were enough reporters to cover all the suburbs to go to every school board meeting. There is no way, whether it's the Times-Picayune or the Boston Globe or or you know the Des Moines Register, that anybody covers that stuff now. There are whole swaths of the country that aren't covered. Big decisions made, how to spend schools' money, how to just just ginormous things that impact the country that nobody's covering and i think and i think that's a that's a crisis um i don't know what the answer is you're right the advertising base is eroded i think some of that is the fault of some newspapers for not moving quickly enough to change some of it is the economics of newspapers were this sort of lovely creature that supported you know well supported lots of news organizations my own view is it's Some of it's gonna get, I'm not worried about coverage of the city of San Francisco, to be frank. I think that the combination of wealthy people, um, universities, small startups, because the (coughs) the key to admission is cheaper. I am worried about who's gonna cover Newark. I am worried about who's gonna cover the working class East St. Louis. I am worried about who's gonna cover the working class suburbs of Chicago and New Orleans where there's not going to be an economic reason to, to start news organizations, and I don't know what the answer is, but I think we have to engage the question pretty forcefully right now.
1: Um, you, you have the benefit of, a, uh, uh, of a, an owner who is the wealthiest man on the planet. Uh, what luxuries does that afford you that Dean doesn't have?
2: Uh, well, first of all, I mean... He, How about I, Jeff I
1: should... Bezos, the You'd owner pay of pay Amazon, us. yeah.
2: So I look. I mean, I think the important thing to point out is that he doesn't regard us as a charity, um, and we have to be a sustainable business. Uh, we have to be able to operate independently. So when he acquired us years ago, uh, he did make some initial investments. But now we are profitable, and we are paying our way. Uh, and we're using those profits to, to reinvest. Now, he doesn't need the dividend, any dividends from the business, obviously, uh, but so we, we have the opportunity to reinvest in our business, to, in, to invest in innovation, to invest in, in expanded coverage and, and all of that, and that's exactly what we're doing. And what he's brought to our institution is not only the financial capital, but I think intellectual capital, a real understanding of the, the digital world that we live in today, and also a very sophisticated understanding of consumer behavior which is we're in a consumer business and so uh, he's brought both of those to uh, to to the Washington Post and that's been very helpful.
1: Dean, uh, the consumer business, how much do you have to think about that when you when you decide what you're going to cover, what you're going to put in the paper, what you're going to put online, getting eyeballs, getting subscribers? Do you cover regions you wouldn't cover? Is there, are there people in Canada who might su- subscribe to the New York Times? Should we do more coverage of Canada? Uh, how much are those considerations that you have to give when, in order to just keep your newspaper uh, going? You know, I don't, it's funny, I don't
0: think about that as purely an economic. I say newspaper, I've got an old hat. Yeah, no, no, join yeah. the club. <laughs> I don't think of that as, as, as so much an economic issue? I want to be read, right? I want to have lots of readers. If I don't have lots of readers, I'm not going to have impact. If I don't have lots of readers, I'm not going to be able to perform my mission. If the question is, the current economics, even though they're not as great in terms of revenue, but the current economics for news organizations like the New York Times and the Post, this is a better formula than what what Marty and I and you grew up in, where 90% of our revenue came from advertisers. I would much rather be beholden to readers. I would much rather have to go out and fight to get readers around the world than fight to get advertisers, to be frank, right? I mean, I would much—and we don't—I mean, we don't chase clicks. Nobody comes to The New York Times for the Kardashians. If I woke up tomorrow morning and I called up, the, brought up, brought in all of my deputies and said, I really think we should just change our whole model, we'd go out of business. There are a lot of people who do that. No, no cat photos, huh? No cat, I like cats, but no. No cat, but, but a lot of people do that better than, better than us. We're not gonna do that. I wanna fight for readers. I think we have to fight for readers.
1: So you are uh, America's, uh, you're the editors of America's uh, most uh, decorated newspapers, you yourself uh, are honored journalists. You've left a trail of Pulitzers in your wake. You're fiercely uh, competitive. You're completely different in personality. Uh, And yet, you seem to be good friends. We
2: are. Uh, We are. Why? <laughs> well, I think the major difference is, as you pointed out, I'm not a natural movie star, but he is. So there's, we're quite different that way. So. We work together at the, I mean, at the we Times.
0: Were, we work together at the Times. We have, um, I mean, uh, my recollection is it started with an interest in art. He and I would spend a lot of time together um, in New York going to art galleries. Um, I, I, I like Marty's mind, I like his interest in art, I, I share his passion for journalism. Um, um, and no, I would I would consider Marty on the
1: on the short list a very close. Okay, run. but we've talked about truth here, and I want, you, <laughs> I, want, I, want I want you to know, but I want you to tell the truth. I, How much does it fry you when you have to? include in a story as first reported in the New York Times, or when yeah. you have to include as first
2: reported in the Washington Post. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you now you guys have the, do that uh, all the time. Though, look, right? nobody likes to get beat. It yeah. does fry us. I mean, our reporters, both the reporters yeah. who work at each of our organizations are highly competitive, yeah. uh, and I think that's, that's the way that it ought to be, yeah. uh, and we encourage that competition. Uh, but we also share something, and we share yeah. the mission. Uh, we really do, and I think that, especially these days, people really feel that in our profession, certainly uh, between our two organizations, but I think it, it's broader than that, is people have a sense that we have a shared mission these days, yeah. uh, and that we need to be supportive of each other. Right. Um, so. um that's i think that's you know obviously we have a great friendship uh, but what binds our institutions is the sense of share is the sense of shared mission
0: Ima- imagine if you will just for a second if if only one american news organization was writing the tough stories about this administration and was constantly under attack by this administration. Imagine what that would be like. It would be so easy to undermine, whether it was the Washington Post or the New York Times, if it was one. If you read the early, read about the early coverage of Watergate, where it really was the Washington Post, it was it was that was a lot easier target to say. Here's this bad news organization that's trying to undermine. It 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 matters that that you know more. A lot of news organizations, particularly our two, are in the game competing against each other
1: so enemies of the people unite is that the- <laughs> <laughs> it's great oh, yeah, t-shirt it's pretty- great, great great to be with you guys I really appreciate you. it it's all pretty- right thank, thank you. you so we're here in the signers hall at the Constitution Center these life-size statues honoring the 42 men all men uh, in the in that day uh, who uh, hammered out uh, the Constitution and uh, including this guy james madison who has special meaning i know to both of you he was the drafter of the first amendment uh, including freedom of the press something i'm sure he regretted at times when he became president mm-hmm. the press was writing about him and this is what he said to the press alone checkered as it is with abuses the world is indebted for all the triumphs which have been gained by reason and humanity over error and oppression And the assumption that all of them made was that if people had the facts, if they had the truth, that they could make uh, good reasoned, rational judgments about how to govern themselves. Uh, Does it bother you guys that uh, there is a hammering away, a chipping away of faith in the news media as a deliverer of fact, as a deliverer of truth?
2: Uh, It does bother me, and I think it bothers pretty much everybody in the profession. Uh, There's a question as to whether there are actual basic facts. I think it's very difficult to have a democracy without agreement on underlying facts. We can disagree about uh, how to solve our problems. We can disagree about the analysis of the situation, Uh, but there are underlying facts. And I think now there's a questioning as to whether... The press should be an independent arbiter of the facts. People are calling that that role into question, but not just the the press, uh, but they're questioning whether law enforcement can be an arbiter of the facts, whether courts can, whether uh, science can be an arbiter of the facts, universities, what have you. Uh, And I think that's a dangerous situation because it's not just a matter of somebody's personal opinion. It's not a matter of who has the biggest megaphone. There are actual facts in this world. There are truths in this world. They're difficult to get at. It's a process, a process of striving. uh, But uh, that's what we all try to work toward. But there is
1: uh, an organized strategy uh, by the president and his supporters uh, to question that, and uh, we, the, the term "alternative facts" right. has now come into the popular <clears throat> lexicon. Well, what does that mean? I think that means. I think it's
0: part, as Marty said. I think it's part of an organized effort to undermine the institutions that have a role in, in not only trying to understand the facts, but also in questioning power. I think. I think. I think it's sort of a concerted effort, to be honest, to make sure that the institutions that have as their role to be independent of the powerful institutions that run the government to make sure that we have less authority, less influence, and to undermine us. And I think, by the way, I think that's not just true of the press. I think it's true of the FBI. I think it's true of the Justice Department. I think these guys set up a situation where there were certain institutions that could question power as a way to check power. And I think there's an organized effort to undermine those institutions. uh,
1: The the press itself is an institution that has enormous power. And yeah. there was a great deal of discussion uh, around the room <coughs> with these, these men about, uh, about that. And I want to introduce you to another fellow you know who had some concerns about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <coughs> Benjamin Franklin. He got a seat because he was in his eighties at the time, he was near uh, near death. He was a a supporter of the the idea of freedom of the press, but he had concerns about it, about unlimited check power. Every other institution that they created with this Constitution uh, had a system of checks and balances and he expressed concern about the unlimited uh... power of the press and one of the concerns he had was who would exercise that power and he said any man who can procure pen ink and paper with a press and a huge pair of blacking balls may commit commissionate himself and it struck me that we're in another era right. in which anybody can commission <clears throat> themselves anybody with a phone can become a, a, a journalist uh, and that has changed uh, the, the, the world from when all of us started in journalism, um, is it a positive thing that we have now this infinite number of news sources, some of which are, uh, are, are, are unaccountable?
2: Well, I think, uh, look, I think we're going actually back to the time of the, the founders when people were pamphleteers, uh, ideological pamphleteers. And so we're seeing that in an electronic age, in a digital age now. And so pretty much anybody can, can start up what they, whatever they want. This is a more difficult time. Uh, I think the public has uh, a greater challenge in front of it, which is to decide who's trustworthy and who's not, who's doing real reporting and who's not doing real reporting, who's uh, aligned with certain political interests, and who's truly independent. Uh, and certainly our institutions uh, maintain our independence. Uh, independence from uh, <coughs> party, ideology, all of that. Our obligation in our newsroom, uh, in our newsrooms, plural, is to, uh, is to, get, at, is to get at the truth. Uh, but it is true that this is a time where uh, pretty much anybody can get into the business of at least expressing an opinion, uh, not necessarily unearthing the facts. There, it's
0: a, it's a. I would say though, overall, I think it's a positive thing. I mean, I think that as painful as it is, and I agree with Marty, the the cacophony is disturbing, and the inability sometimes of people to tell the difference between what we strive for, and the and and all of the other players. But but overall, I would still argue that having more voices, having more people have access not only to reading news. I mean, just as somebody who grew up in. Um, in a place that only had access to one or two newspapers in New Orleans. The fact that that same kid can now read The Guardian and that that same kid can read things from different stripes and hopefully make up his own mind, I, I got to think that that's better, as difficult as it is.
1: You know, uh, there was a, a poll recently in which people said uh, they feel that they're less informed because there's too much. <clears throat> yeah. They feel overwhelmed. Yeah. And that's one of the problems of the modern yeah. age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What what about from an editorial standpoint, because we used to have this quaint thing called news cycles when I started in the newspaper business, when you guys started in the newspaper business, there are no news cycles anymore. At any instant, one of those pamphleteers could uh, publish a story online that will send your big news organizations scrambling. How does does that changed the way you have to approach your jobs?
0: It's, I mean, it's dramatic. It, it means, I mean, the old news cycles of print, which were essentially were built around a, the, the distribution and printing of a, of a newspaper. Of course it's relentless, and it's particularly relentless in an era when one of the greatest pamphleteers, or at least one of the most prolific ones, is the president, who can sort of change the news cycle at the drop of a hat. And knows it. And knows it. I, I think the challenge for us, and it is a challenge, is, to understand that we don't have to respond to every blip in the news cycle. I think the challenge for us is to remind ourselves, and I suspect Marty would say the same thing, um, that that we do have to understand the difference between, in an era when anybody can disrupt the news cycle, that we have to work hard to understand the difference between legitimate news, real news, stuff that really affects people's lives, and things that are just sort of designed to distract us.
1: We've talked about facts <coughs> and truth. Does the pace of 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 journalism today and this kind of instantaneous uh, uh, factor, does it make it harder to uh, ensure that uh, you're not rushing into uh, print or uh, online with uh, stories that aren't fully reported, aren't uh, thoroughly edited?
2: Uh, Yes, Uh, it's infinitely more difficult these days. Uh, The reality is that, uh, as you say, there's no natural news cycle. Uh, news can happen at any moment so if the president decides to tweet for example at 10.30 at night or 5.30 in the morning uh, we need to react to that to some degree Uh, but other things can happen as well And and the public look is demanding that the public is saying they want news instantly they're all walking around with uh, mobile phones. Uh, We have a tremendous amount of competition. Uh, As you said, lots of people can now be in this business and are in this business and we're providing alerts instantaneously based on what happened. The pressure on us to get things right uh, is far greater than it was before because there's less time in which to verify things. But we still have that obligation to, for our news organizations, to verify the information that we're disseminating and we will not sacrifice that in the interest. Of I mean, do you,
1: but it, it seems almost, uh, almost sure that um, there are mistakes that result from this—the lack of news cycles, the lack of a, a time to actually vet everything. That, and I've heard people say, "Look, we'll fix it. We'll fix it online." And but once something is in the ether, uh, it's pretty hard to roll it back.
2: It's, it's true, uh, and, and there can be more mistakes there were <coughs> mistake, mistakes in the past too, right. and by the way, when you had a mistake in the past, if it was in print, it was there all day long, and you couldn't fix it as quickly. Right. Now, at least, when we do make a mistake, and we're not flawless, we're flawed like everybody else because we're human, uh, when we do make a mistake, uh, we can correct it uh, quickly.
1: You know, I want to go over here and, uh, uh, and introduce you to one other guy who I know you have a particular. Fondness for. <laughs> no. He was a dissenter on, this, uh, on the Constitution, but not on the importance of the freedom of the press.
2: Right, although I would have signed the Constitution.
1: Okay, <laughs> all right, Let, note it.
0: <laughs> that's, that's a headline. <laughs> Barron would sign the Constitution. Today.
1: <clears throat> George Mason from Virginia. George Mason from uh, Virginia who was a dissenter, and you were talking before we uh, began about uh, why he was a dissenter, why did George Mason dissent on the Constitution? Well,
2: it didn't, it didn't have a Bill of Rights, and he felt that it should have a Bill of Rights or what would have been considered a Bill of Which Rights. Which Virginia at the time. did, and he was the author. Virginia did, and it had something equivalent, essentially, to First <coughs> the First Amendment, so that it guaranteed freedoms for the, for the press. Uh, he was also concerned about uh, slavery and that there was no prohibition on that. Even though he, though he was, he was an owner. Thing. He was an owner of slavery. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, and another great thing about him is that he was sort of the emblem of the Enlightenment at the time—the uh, notion of reason and facts and things like that. And uh, so, I think he's a person to be admired. He's so often he, forgotten. So
1: here's what he said: He said, "The freedom of the press is one of the greatest bulwarks of liberty and can never be restrained but by." despotic governments, and it reminds me that when I go to your website, Marty, uh, the first thing that greets me now is uh, uh, these words, democracy dies in the darkness. In darkness, how, what, what was the provenance of that?
2: Well, uh, I should say that this predated the current administration, for sure. Uh, we were trying to come up with a motto that uh, boiled down our mission to its, its essence. Uh, and our owner, uh, Jeff Bezos, was interested in that. Uh, And he saw a special mission for us as well as the entire uh, news media, which is to shine a light in dark corners. Uh, Bring transparency to government and to other powerful individuals and institutions. And so uh, we worked on that for a year and we've had hundreds if not a thousand (coughs) different options. Uh, And that line actually dates back to the time of Watergate. Uh, There was a judge who said something very much equivalent to that. And uh, it did sort of capture uh, quite well what our mission is, which is to shine the light in dark corners.
1: And do you think, Dean, that this is, do you feel this is the essential role of, uh, I mean, you do a lot of things. Is yeah. this the essence of, of what uh, the news media yeah. is, is there for?
0: for? For all the things we do, and sometimes in, in, in this era, people forget all the things we do, whether it's covering business, whether it's covering... Sports, the, the, the essential thing we do is, is to, to steal their, their um, logo is to tell people the things that powerful people don't want them to know. Whether in this case it's to, it's to work really hard to understand whatever role Russia had in the presidential election, whether it's to understand the power of new players like Facebook and Google, there, there, there are no other institutions that have as their large responsibility to try to understand those worlds. To explain them to people, to dig deep, and to dig deep despite the fact that the people, the people in power, don't necessarily want us to understand those things.
1: Now Mason said the only <coughs> thing that could thwart freedom of the press is is, is despotic uh, leadership, but there is another way, uh, and we got into it a little, and that is to discredit the press as yeah. a cred- credible source, and that also undermines freedom of the press.
0: That's right. And, and, and it puts greater pressure on us, I will say, to make sure we get it right. <clears throat> it puts greater pressure on us to remember sort of what our roots are, which is why I think both of our institutions have worked hard to, to remind people what our historic roots are. But—and but and maybe I'm too much of an optimist—but I actually think that in the end—and I think the evidence is the fact that both of our audiences are growing—people understand that the press has a very powerful role in the society, and that that role will outlast whoever tries to thwart us, because it always has.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> point. I know that, Marty, you've, you've said, you've pointed to the fact that after Watergate, that uh, confidence in the, in the news media was at an all-time high. Trust was, I think, 72 percent in 1976. It's mm-hmm. not nearly that uh, now. But it, it got me thinking about what if there were what if there was cable television? What if there was Fox News at the time? What if there was <coughs> social media and Nixon <coughs> had all the tools uh, that uh, that Donald Trump and frankly other politicians have today? Would that story have turned out differently?
2: Uh, I don't think the story would have turned out differently because there were underlying facts. There was also a Congress that was active and, right. and conducting its own investigation, investigation, investigation that had integrity and, and that's, that's really who were willing to. Partisan, stand up to and, the and partisans who were willing to stand up to the president. So, uh, so it was a different, it's certainly a different time. I think it's important to remember <clears throat> that before a press credibility rose to those high levels that you just mentioned, it wasn't so high uh... because yep. the press was under attack by richard nixon and his entire administration uh... and he was describing the watergate investigation as a he didn't use the word hoax but he certainly described it as a uh... as a partisan effort uh, by his enemies to bring down his pr- to bring down his presidency and and argued of course the entire time that there was there was no truth to the the allegations uh... and so i think it's important to remember that um, we, need to look, we, need, we need to look over the long run uh, right. We need to make sure that our reporting, even if it's under attack in the short run, that it needs to be validated over the long run. And so, I always keep in mind, you know, how is this going to look a year from now, two years from now, things like that.
1: And you're sitting in Ben Bradley's office who had those same concerns back, <laughs> back in the day. Well, yeah, metaphorically. Metaphorically, or, yeah, We're yes. not, not actually yes. in the same office <laughs> exactly. anymore. Exactly, yes. Because newspapers sell their real estate. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Exactly.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.